Welcome to the New Arab Voice, our podcast bringing you compelling stories and deep dives every month from the Middle East, Africa, Asia, and beyond. It's a great plan for Israel. It's a great plan for peace. On January 28th, U.S. President Donald Trump and Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu detonated a political bombshell, revealing the terms of the deal of the century, a supposed strategy for peace between Israel and Palestine. But the Palestinians were not invited to the ceremony in the White House, casting immediate doubt on the viability of the peace plan. For a deeper look into what this means for the future of the Palestinian question, we will speak to Ian Black, former Middle East editor for The Guardian. The Trump plan does deliver a death blow to the idea that there can be a two-state solution to this conflict. We will also hear later from Dr. Yara Hawari from the Palestinian Policy Network, who is on the ground. A major escalation by the Assad regime in the last rebel enclave in Syria has sent half a million civilians fleeing for their lives. The new Arab's Paul McLaughlin will explain just what is at stake. Then, in protests hit Lebanon, the appointment of a record six female ministers in a new government has been hailed as progress for women. But women's rights activists say that the affiliation of these women to traditional male politicians and their focus on superficial issues will do little to address the country's problems, including the systematic discrimination against women. Feminists in Beirut will share their views on what real progress should actually look like. Last but not least, Lebanon's famous pop diva Nancy Ajram has been caught up in a murder investigation involving her husband. With the victim turning out to be a Syrian refugee, the affair has exposed deep faults within Lebanon's justice system, touching on biased media coverage, racism and corruption. But first, let's talk about Donald Trump's deal of the century. So standing next to Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, Donald Trump unveiled the terms of the so-called deal of the century, a supposed plan to end the Israeli-Palestinian conflict once and for all. But there was a catch. Palestinians were not invited to the White House and they were not consulted about the deal, which seems to have ignored most of their demands. Our journalist and news editor, Charlie Hoyle, who previously reported from the West Bank, interviewed Dr. Ian Black. Dr. Black is the former Middle East and diplomatic editor for The Guardian, a visiting fellow at the LSE Middle East Institute, and the author of Enemies and Neighbors, Arabs and Jews in Palestine and Israel. Could you explain what Trump's peace plan entails? I think the key thing to say about it is that it ticks all the boxes on the Israeli side and completely ignores the Palestinians. It has very little chance, in my view, zero chance of success. But the key issue is that the White House, the most powerful country uh, on the planet, is basically endorsing the right-wing Israeli view of Benjamin Netanyahu in terms of a possible peace settlement with the Palestinians. It allows Israel to annex significant parts of the occupied Palestinian territories. It doesn't um, undermine the Israeli government's view on the legality of settlements, which much of the rest of the world thinks are illegal. It reinforces the Israeli view on its annexation of East Jerusalem and so on and so forth. The Trump plan does deliver a death blow to the idea that there can be a two-state solution to this conflict. That's brilliant. 
Thank you very much. In that case, you know, given that this has been described as a kind of annexation plan, where does the Palestinian Authority go from here in terms of their objectives and garnering support? What can they do in response to this plan? It's honestly a devastating blow for the Palestinian Authority. The further the prospect recedes of any kind of two-state solution to the conflict, the more exposed the Palestinian Authority in a sense that they are simply subcontractors for the Israeli occupation. And I think young Palestinians in particular do not believe anymore in the possibility of a two-state solution. And there is dissatisfaction and indeed anger at the maintenance of the status quo. Uh, Many critics, Palestinian critics, say that what you have to do is to reconvene for the first time in many years a real version of the Palestinian National Congress. That's the nearest thing that Palestinians have to a public forum for consultation to map out the future. Given warming overtures between Israel and Gulf states to peace deals already with Jordan and Egypt and the general opening of relations, both commercial and potentially political, where do Palestinians find themselves in the region in the future? I think it's very unsettling in regional terms. It's true, of course, that Israel has had peace treaties with Egypt and Jordan. The Jordanians are very angry about this plan. Perhaps 60 or 70 percent of the population of Jordan is of Palestinian origin. The fear is that Jordan will serve as a target, if you like, for the future Israeli governments for some kind of solution to the Palestinian question. The idea that Jordan is Palestine has a long history in Israeli thinking. As for the Gulf states, well, it's very interesting to note that the Emirate, the UAE, Bahrain and Oman all sent their ambassadors to the White House ceremony when the Trump plan was unveiled. My own view is that they won't go along with this because it's such an open blow to the Palestinians that the relations will continue but they won't develop to such an extent that there is open normalization because of the emotive issue of the Palestinian cause amongst their subjects. Brilliant. Thanks, Ian. Anger, despair and pain are emotions which are far too familiar to Palestinians living under Israeli occupation, who declared a day of rage following the announcement of Trump's plan. We spoke to Dr. Yara Hawari in the Palestinian Territories, who is a senior policy fellow at Al-Shabaka, the Palestinian policy network which seeks to foster public debate on Palestinian human rights and self-determination. It's not surprising at the context of this plan. This is already a reality that's in place. Israel has already been annexing the West Bank. Um, The U.S. already moved its embassy to to Jerusalem and Israel controls all of Jerusalem. So these are all things that already are in action and exist on the ground. It's very difficult for many Palestinians to see their lives and their futures discussed with such disregard on an international stage. So it's not easy to hear the likes of Kushner and others talk about Palestinians as if they have to prove themselves before they can be treated as full, equal human beings. One of the most contentious parts of the deal states, there shall be no right of return by or absorption of any Palestinian refugee into the state of Israel. The the Trump administration and Netanyahu are willing to consider allowing a few token tens of thousands of refugees to return to the West Bank. But of course, that's not return because 
under international law, returning is returning to their villages and, uh, and lands proper, the ones that they were originally expelled from in 1948. Um, so not only does it disregard international law, it, you know, this is the, the right of return is also something that's considered very central and sacred to the Palestinian struggle. More than half of the Palestinian people live in exile, and it should be fully within their right to return home. But there has been denied, not just by Trump and Netanyahu, that has been a constant policy since Israel was established, to deny um, these refugees um, the right to come home. For millions of Palestinian refugees who have been displaced outside Palestine for generations, this is a sentence of permanent exile. Anger against Trump's deal has reverberated around the world. We went to a protest against the plan outside of the U.S. Embassy in London, in the U.K. We are standing in front of the U.S. Embassy today, and we are at this protest to stand and shout loud and say that we are against Trump's plan, which totally disregards international law and Palestinian rights, and that this is no deal for the century, but in fact it is nothing less than a deal and a scam. Leanne's family has been living in refugee camps in Lebanon for the past 71 years, following the Nakba in 1948, which created the state of Israel and triggered the largest exodus of Palestinians into neighboring countries. They still demand their right to return, and they do have a right to return because Palestinians have a right to exist, they have a right to return, and they have a right to live free from occupation, apartheid, and siege. The Syrian regime has long threatened to recover every last inch of Syria from the rebels. In December, Assad's forces launched an offensive to capture the last rebel-held province in Idlib, putting its 3.5 million people at grave risk. And with Turkish forces present in the area, the military operation threatens to turn into a regional showdown. Paul McLaughlin, our senior news editor and author of our Syria Weekly Dispatches, joins us in the studio to explain the current situation there. So, Paul, thank you for coming in. Could you give us an overview of the situation in Syria? Since December, the Syrian regime launched a massive offensive on the Idlib province. Mm. This has forced hundreds of thousands of people to flee their homes as the regime in Russia launched a massive, massive bombing campaign in the villages and towns in southern Idlib. This has left a bit of a problem between uh, Russia and Turkey, which are sort of allies on an international stage. But in Syria, they're on the backing opposing sides. Russia is, of course, back in the Syrian regime in the offensive, whereas Turkey has shown some nominal support for the Syrian opposition. Turkey also operates a number of observation posts in Idlib province and has been trying to implement a demilitarized zone, which was agreed last September, between Russia and Turkey. On Monday, there was an attack by the Syrian regime which killed eight Turkish soldiers, and this resulted in Turkey launching retaliatory strikes. Turkey is at the moment urging Russia to put pressure on the Syrian regime to, went to halt its offensive and has also made its own, issued its own threats to the Syrian regime to, to um, stop the bombing. Mm, I understand. And how many people will be displaced by these developments? Where will, where will the fleeing civilians go? One of the main concerns for Turkey is that there is around 3 million civilians in Idlib province and these are being pushed towards the Turkish border as the, offensive pursue, as the regime pursues its offensive. Turkey has closed its borders but this leads to a massive humanitarian situation along um, its frontier and Turkey is worried that this could lead to millions more people being forced to flee into Turkey and it's already stretched hosting around 3 million Syrian refugees as it is. I heard about one particular resident of Marat al-Numan. Um, his name is Ahmad Jafal, and I read that he got caught in the violence. 
Could you tell us a little bit more about his story? One of the tragic stories from this episode was um, that of Ahmed Jafal, and then the elderly 70-year-old Syrian man who suffered from mental health issues. The White Helmets tried to convince him to leave with the rest of the, uh, rest of the city's residents during an evacuation, but he stayed behind. Photos which were shared on social media by regime soldiers showed that um, he was murdered by the regime and his body burned. And um, this was being shared widely by activists to show the cost of what could potentially happen if civilians stay behind during these regime offensives. So what is in store for the future of Syria? Syrian observers will be looking for over the next week is the relationship between Turkey and Russia and whether the two sides can agree to a ceasefire. There's still thousands of people fleeing each week from this regime offensive and the only way for it to be halted, for this um, situation to be improved is if Russia halts its bombing and can convince the Syrian regime to also stop its ground offensive. Thank you so much, Paul. On the 21st of January, Lebanon finally appointed a new government, almost three months after Saad Hariri's government was ousted in street protests. The new prime minister, Hassan Diab, said he would enact urgent reforms to deal with the country's economic crisis and promised to heed the demands of the protesters. But what made the headlines was that for the first time in Lebanon's history, the government included six female ministers, one of whom was the first female defense minister in the Middle East. The move has been hailed by some as progress in a country where women continue to face systematic discrimination in all matters. But women's rights activists are far from impressed. They say these appointments are nothing more than tokenism. Randa Hamoud is a human rights activist in Beirut. She is one of the thousands of women at the forefront of the revolution since the start of the protests in October 2019. She is one of the many to be distrustful of this new government. People are very disappointed and very angry with the currently formed government, not only because basically this currently formed government um, represents the same structure and establishment that we've been calling on the abolishment of, but basically because... This current formation makes a total joke of people's demands. It is almost like the establishment is trying to tell people, well, we're not really listening to you and we're trying to push our interests no matter what. She explained to me why the record number of women in the cabinet doesn't make her less skeptical that the demands of the protesters will continue to be ignored. You know, with assigning women with this like quota thinking kind of mentality where we think, okay, if we have women figures in the cabinet, then women's demands are represented. Uh, it's just not something that will actually bring about real and tangible change because we've had women in cabinet in the past, you know. With the last cabinet, we had four women ministers, which was relatively more than what we had before. And one of them was the Ministry of Interior, which was also a big, um, sort of was publicized as this big game for women's rights and the first woman interior minister and whatever. And that didn't really bring about real change when it comes to women's rights and women's demands. Because again, the problem isn't just having women figures, it's more about representing these demands. And those demands are only represented through Think, moving towards thinking of a new political landscape because these women that we're bringing into cabinet, they represent the same establishment and the same structure, which is patriarchal and discriminatory in nature. Carmen Jeha resigned from the National Commission for Lebanese Women in 2018 because she witnessed how the present political system cannot be conducive to effective reform. She is now an activist and a professor at the American University of Beirut. 
She has done ample research on the reason behind the poor access women have to the political system and says it is due to the country's patriarchal history. Women are playing a role. They've always played a role. The only reason that we're not visible in formal political roles is because of the power structures that have controlled the system after the civil war. What happened in Lebanon, particularly after the civil war, is there are seven or eight men that really led the war that went down from their tanks washed their hands from the blood and decided to really take over the governance of the entire system. And those same men preside over their parties. They don't use political deliberation and formal institutions like parliament in order to make decisions. They go and sit on some kind of national table, which is secret. And it's impossible for women to really penetrate and have a voice in this triangle of this warlord turned politician. Second, the religious courts that governs our lives. And third, the presence of weapons. And so this really makes it very difficult, almost impossible. I've done research, you know, with almost 100 women who sort of participated and thought about this political representation issue. And they all, you know, say the same things. Um, the skills and, and, and the, the, the platforms that we have are not what it takes in Lebanon to make it into politics, basically. You need to be rich and powerful and allied with the big guys, and most women are not. But what the revolution does is discredit the rich man and the sectarian man and the armed men, really, and create new platforms for political participation where they're, of course, women, you know, become at center stage in kind of creating these inclusive political platforms that allow not only for women, but women's issues uh, to be heard from across the board. And this has been, you know, very, very inspiring to see from, you know, Kferremen to Tripoli. She says that the nomination of women to the cabinet merely serves as a symbol and that the women themselves don't actually have the power to push for reform. Um, the political elite after the civil war um, uh, are in, unable and incompetent. They cannot do reform in the direction of gender equality because they'll have to let go one of their most important allies and sources of power, which is religious courts. So any sort of empowerment or push for women from their end will remain what we call in research a very nominal type representation, which we see all over the Arab world, which is increasing the number of women and creating sort of structures that nominally represent women. I mean, I sat on one of those structures I, 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 I had the pleasure to serve on the National Commission for a bit, and then I resigned because this nominal type representation doesn't increase substantive representation. We know this from research. And we know that the women who are now currently in the cabinet, it's a nice nominal win. I mean, I, you know, it's great and we don't want to speak ill of them, but they are not uh, sovereign and able to take the decisions that will be in their interest and in the interest of other women, just because the kind of men that nominated them can't and won't be able to do that. So the religious courts that were mentioned before play a huge role in women's agency within the Lebanese state and their participation to every aspect of society. Maya McDashi is a professor of gender studies and Middle Eastern studies at Rutgers University, and she is the co-founder of online magazine Jadalia. She's a specialist on how women interact within Lebanon's legal system. Um, I think unique challenges and the unique ways in which women are uh, positioned legally, uh, and my work is mostly on, on law, Lebanese law. So I think that there's a unique way in which for example, a domestic violence law was uh, the activism around it was was very uh, strong because of a of a legal um, 
lack of protections around particular forms of gendered violence and a lack of recognition about particular forms of gendered violence. Similarly, uh, you have, for example, uh, the nationality campaign, which is probably the broadest feminist uh, campaign in Lebanon. So, of course, uh, women will be at the forefront of organizing for their equality. That makes sense, right? It shouldn't be surprising that in a country where the majority of citizens, which are female citizens, cannot grant their citizenship to their spouses or children, of course they're going to be at the forefront of organizing for equality. On the day this podcast was recorded, the protesters were anxiously waiting for the vote of confidence which would confirm the nominations of this new government. The police was erecting walls to keep protesters out of the city centre in another attempt to quell the revolt. But all of the women we spoke to were hopeful that the revolution will not rest until all voices of both men and women will be heard. Nancy Ajram is the closest thing Lebanon has to a national sweetheart. Approachable, cutesy, and liked by all, she has been the small country's best love celebrity singer in the past 20 years. That is, until the 5th of January. He's being chased by Nancy Ajram's husband, and uh, he kind of explains how Kenneth came in. He wanted to rob some valuable goods. And basically the turning point where he, quote unquote, you know, decided to go kamikaze on him was when he threatened to harm or take hostage one of the kids. Sixteen bullets flew around the pop diva's house in what was claimed to be a desperate attempt by her husband to save his family. On that fateful Sunday night, Nancy's husband, Fadi, shot dead an alleged intruder in their luxury villa in the leafy hills near Beirut. He claimed it was self-defense, but the family of the victim, a Syrian refugee named Mohammed Musa, claimed he had worked for the couple and had come to demand unpaid wages. Alleged CCTV footage released by Nancy's publicists seemed to support her family's account of the events, but public opinion has been divided about whether it was staged. Typical of all celebrity scandals, there have been countless rumors of blackmail, love affairs, and cover-ups. To no one's surprise, the case has captured the imagination of Lebanese and Arabs, spawning a trial by public opinion parallel to official investigations by Lebanon's public prosecutor, who has charged Nancy's husband with murder and self-defense and released him on bail. But given Lebanon's notorious racist attitudes towards Syrian refugees, about 1.5 million of whom have fled the small country, the narratives have fixated on the victim's nationality instead of the quest for justice. I remember when it first happened and it turned out that whoever this person was was, uh, was potentially a, a Syrian. I got a bit worried because I know how xenophobic the media is here. Karim Shahayeb is a Lebanese journalist who leads investigations at The Public Source, an independent Beirut-based media organization. And of course, we've heard stories about lots of about ill-treatment, um, violent ill-treatment, often, of course, against towards Syrian workers and refugees. And of course, I mean, you'll see some political figures, or not necessarily figures, but people who are linked to political parties, especially the Free Patriotic Movement, 
say, look, this is what this is why we want the refugees to go back because they are causing X, Y, and Z to happen, as if robberies and murders and all sorts of crime don't happen. I don't think you know aren't done by Lebanese people. On social media, people have reached their own conclusions that either exonerate Nancy and Fadi and hail them as national heroes, or demonize them as the embodiment of everything wrong with the broken Lebanese system. But the resonance of the incident goes beyond a simple hunger for celebrity gossip in Lebanon's Twitter sphere. The key elements of the murder case, inequality, gun violence, and racist attitudes towards Syrians in Lebanon crystallize the turbulent and divided moment the country finds itself in. The judicial system in Lebanon is a very big component, which I think all protesters and even people outside who don't even support the protest and uprising kind of agree that it requires a lot of reform, uh, sort of the independence of the judiciary in particular. People do see it as sort of hijacked by political parties and, uh, you know, whether it's any kind of branch of the judiciary, which allows and makes room for you know, various forms of economic and other forms of corruption and lets people go for, for some pretty heinous crimes sometimes. And I think considering that the protests are all about the worsening economic inequalities uh, happening in Lebanon and, and, and the economic crisis, people felt that they don't want to put their energy into this kind of prestigious family, which will, which they feel is not even worth the energy because they're going to get away with it no matter what the case is. There is a massive lack of trust for, uh, you know, any government institutions whether both factors of Musa's class and nationality work against him, the prospect of a thorough, unbalanced investigation seems far-fetched. This scandal symbolizes the heavy distrust in Lebanon's institutions, which catalyzed the popular movements demanding reform. A fair and just judicial system which treats everyone equally, regardless of their race, class and gender, may be the most important reform for the future of Lebanon's democracy. However, it seems that none of this has bothered Nancy. Last month, she said she will resume her work, teasing a new single on Instagram and reassuring her fans that everything will be exactly as it was before. Thank you for listening to The New Arab Voice. This episode was researched by Charlie Hoyle, Florence Dixon and Paul McLaughlin and produced by myself, Gaia Karamazza.